Two weeks left. Hard to believe. Ten months. Gone. Like that, feels like. And at the same time, it feels like it's been forever that I've been studying Genesis. But <clears throat> two weeks left. So this week, there's going to be a lot of content. We're going through functionally two chapters about. We're starting in chapter 48, verse 1, and we're going all the way to 50, verse 3. So we'll be, at the end of the night, we'll be in the last chapter of Genesis. We'll have 20-odd verses left at the end of tonight. So we're nearing the end. And of course, when you near the end, what do you think of? You think of death. And that's what we're going to study tonight. Tonight, we will see the death of Jacob, right? Truly the last, uh, Joseph is technically a patriarch, but truly the last of these, this set of three that we think of, right? When you think of that, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And that's the language that's used throughout the Bible. And of course, tonight, we're going to see the death of this patriarch, Jacob. So I titled this sermon, The Death of Jacob. No reason to get fancy with it. That's what it's focused on, is death. So where we left off, remember, was a great reunion between Jacob and Joseph. They'd finally been reunited. And the brothers came down, and they went before Pharaoh, and they got placed as basically royal herdsmen, royal flock keepers. And so they were in a good position, and they'd been taken care of. And Jacob went before uh, Pharaoh. And remember what he said. He said, how many years have you been alive? He says that to Jacob. And Jacob says what? He says, oh, my years have been few and bad. Few and bad. I've lived 130 years, and I have not yet attained the years of my, my fathers. Speaking of Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father. Right? That's where we left off last week. So now in chapter 48, it's going to open up with this reuniting uh, and really in some ways parting blessing of, of specifically Jacob and Joseph. They're going to have an interaction. And then after that, we're going to see the interaction between Jacob and the legacy he's going to leave with his sons, right? He's going to speak to them. Actually, interestingly enough, it's usually referred to as kind of the blessing of Jacob. It's like a deathbed blessing he gives to his son. If you read the words, they're not all blessing. Because what he's actually doing is he's prophesying. He's prophesying over his sons as he leaves. And he leaves them a legacy. And then we'll just have a few verses in chapter 50 that talks about the response to his death. So that's where we're headed tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn open to Genesis 48. If you don't, it's okay, it'll be up here like every week. Verse 1, chapter 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, behold, your father is sick. Okay. What that sick is referring to is he's on his deathbed. It's, it's almost done, right? His time is short. So Joseph goes to him and he brings his children, his two boys. So Joseph took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And when it was told to Jacob, behold, your son, Joseph has come to you. Israel collected his strength. And sat up in the bed. So again, he's very weak. Right? He's, he's, like I said, he's at death's door. So he summons his strength and he sits up so that he can interact with his son and his grandkids one last time. And he says this, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz. Luz is Bethel. If you remember in our story, when God appeared to him at Bethel. 
in the land of Canaan. And God blessed me and God said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous and I will make you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. So what's on Jacob's mind as he's dying? Well, it's the same thing that's been on his mind, really the entirety of his life. It's really the quintessential thought that the patriarchs have had since the beginning. The promises. A land, a seed, a blessing. Now, what is Jacob saying here? He, what Jacob definitely realizes is, one, he's seen the seed come to pass, hasn't he? He has 12 boys. These 12 these 12 sons who are going to become the 12 tribes. He's seen that blessing come to pass. And he's seen a blessing on his own life. Remember, all the way back when he returned to Bethel, what does he say? He said, when I left to go to my uncle, I left with only my staff and nothing else. And now that I'm returning, I have become so great that I've become two companies, two camps. Remember, this is right before he saw Esau again. He said, Lord, you've been with me the whole time. I cross this river with nothing but my staff and I come back and I'm two companies worth of people. You have blessed me beyond belief. Jacob knows that the blessing has happened. What is Jacob not sure of? Or at least what is he worried about? It's the land. His focus is on the land. And as he's dying, his focus is on the land. Why? Because he's not in it. Where is he? He's in Egypt. So Jacob is about to die outside of the land that has been promised to him. Outside of the land that the Lord said, I will give you as an everlasting possession. He's not too concerned with the seed promise because it's come to pass. He's not as concerned with the blessing promise. It's come to it's come to pass. But the land is key. Because the the land that was to be his everlasting possession, he's not in it. And he's literally drawing his final breaths. These last moments, his mind is set to the land of Canaan. Because he's worried. He's concerned. He wants to make sure he knows the Lord will be faithful, but he wants to make sure that this will come to pass, that his sons will know of it. And so he says this about the land. The Lord said, I will give you this land. What? The land of Canaan, not here in Egypt, the land of Canaan. So now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So Jacob, what's he doing in this moment? He's really adopting his grandsons. And it's unique because, of course, Joseph's still there. He's still their father. But what Jacob is trying to do is he's giving these two boys an inheritance. 
which he doesn't have to, right? They're his grandkids. The inheritance is for Joseph. And what's clear is that this, this whole, the whole narrative that has been spun by his sons about Joseph's death, that really impacted Jacob to the point that he almost still treats J- Joseph like he's, like he's dead. Like he was lost to me for so long. I'm so grateful I got to see you. And yet, there still needs to be something more for you. I'm going to pass an inheritance to your boys. These two boys that were born to you before I met you again, before I came back to you in Egypt, they're going to be mine. And they will be numbered among their brothers, just like Reuben and Simeon. That's his point. And so what's going on is that Ephraim and Manasseh are going to become tribes of the nation of Israel. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever thought about that? When you read the Bible, there is no tribe of Joseph, is there? If you read the Old Testament, you don't ever see the tribe of Joseph. Here's why. Because he actually has what they typically refer to as half tribes. And there's two of them. And those two Half-tribes are the tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. And so typically, the, when, when Joseph's tribe is called, it's referred to usually as Ephraim, because Ephraim's the one that became great, right? The one that, that really became the most powerful tribe. There were two that were the most powerful. And again, I've told you, when you think about the author of, Ex, of uh, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Levit, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses, when you think about that time period, and you think about the tribes as they were in that time period, they're trying to explain the existence of their nation to themselves. And one of those things they have to understand, they have to, uh, they have to explain to themselves, how did Ephraim and Judah become so great? How did they become tribes that outnumbered everyone else? How did they become the most powerful? Well, that's what this passage is going to answer. Why is it? We're going to see it when Jacob blesses them before he dies. He blesses Judah and he blesses Joseph specifically. Excuse me. And we're going to see it here where he's adopting these two boys as his own to give them an inheritance among their brothers. And so he does, right? So he, he recounts to Joseph, yes, I lost your mother on the way to Ephrath. And now he's, it's, this is kind of the ritual part of the adoption. So when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here, Right? So there's kind of this formal introduction. That's not to say they've never met each other before. It's the formal part of this ritual, which is to give them an inheritance, right? Because he's going to go on from there and he's going to bless them. So Israel said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him. And Jacob kissed them and embraced them. I love this line. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Jacob is stunned for a moment. He has to stop. 
because he realizes that God's blessing has exceeded the wildest parts of his imagination. I never thought I'd even see you again. I thought you were dead. God has been so gracious. I even get to see your children as well. Jacob is stunned at God's mercy to him. Okay. Remember, his eyes are dim. Joseph is going to make much of that. So Joseph took the boys from his knees and he bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both. Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left. Think of them facing each other, right? If I'm Joseph, Jacob's in front of me. Ephraim with my right hand towards Israel's left. He's facing me. Manasseh with his right hand toward Israel's right. So if you think about Israel, that means Manasseh's over here at his right hand. Ephraim over here at his left hand. Why is that? Who's the firstborn? The firstborn is Manasseh. What does Manasseh's name mean? Do you guys remember? It means I've forgotten. Right? I've forgotten all my toil. And I've forgotten my father's house. What does Ephraim mean? It means God has made me fruitful. His name means fruitful. So there's a symbolism in those names that Jacob is going to attach to, isn't it? He's already been saying Ephraim's name, not specifically, but he's alluding to it, right? What did he say about what God did for him? He said, God's made me fruitful. It's a reference to Ephraim. On the basis of those names, I think this blessing is going to come. So Israel is there with the boys and it says, Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim. And he stretched out his left hand and laid it on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. If you know, the blessing for the firstborn is on the the right, right? This is the position of honor, to be on the right side. And there's a reason for that. Um, The reason, I I, I don't know what the reason is specifically, probably because most people were right-handed. But biblically, what I mean... um, That's considered the position of honor. So the firstborn would have the right side. And in fact, you see that quite a bit, right? Think about the New Testament. Where is Jesus said to to be seated? At the right hand of the Father, right? Because it's the position of authority. It's the position of honor. It's the position of the firstborn. And so typically, whenever you see some kind of reference to right hand in the Bible, it's talking about that they're particularly honored. They're particularly held up. And so Manasseh, as the firstborn, he has the right, the right to be the right hand, the place of honor, the place of authority, because he's the firstborn. And Jacob usurps that. And he, he switches. He says, no, 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 Ephraim. I give him my right hand, the blessing of the right hand. And Manasseh has the blessing of the left hand. So how does Joseph take that? Oh, he's going to say his blessing first. He blessed Joseph. Now, one thing that's interesting in these passages we're going to see is that you start to see a mixing of the personal name and the tribal name, right? Because when it's talking about blessing Joseph, he's not saying he's blessing his son across the room. He's talking about the boys. The boys who are 
the essence of what this tribe is going to become, right? Or these two half tribes, if you want to think of it that way. So you start to see this because it's a prophetic thing. And remember, I I know I've said this throughout this entire series. You've got to remember who's reading this. Who is reading this book for the first time when it's written down? It's the nation of Israel. They're trying to understand who they are. It's the nation of Israel in the time of Moses. Right? The exodus has already happened. They have some semblance of who their God is. They've met him at Sinai. But they're still understanding, they're learning who they are. And so you start to see this kind of prolapsing of both the person with their personal name, like Joseph, and the tribe, who they're going to become. Because the readers are not thinking about necessarily just the man, Joseph. They're thinking about, that's my ancestor. That's my line. That's, that's my tribe. And so you start to see those things laid over each other. So here he blessed Joseph. And he said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. I think that's a precious thing to say for a shepherd. <laughs> we kind of relate God to our, to our own situation, we don't we? Jacob, who's been a shepherd his whole life, says, no, God was my shepherd. I, I get that. I, I think that same way. I'm a pastor. God, who's been my pastor. Now, to be fair, that just means shepherd again. So I guess it's kind of the same, exact same thing. But obviously, there's different connotations in our culture for what a pastor is than it would be for a shepherd in their day. But I do think of God like that. I often think, God, my pastor. Right? Who does the things for me. I don't know. It's like an engineer. God, my engineer. The one who's sorted me out. Right? We kind of relate to God on terms that make sense to us. But I think it's really beautiful. Jacob says that God, Jacob knows what a shepherd's like. He's done it his whole life. God was the one who shepherded me. Cared for me in the wilderness. Made sure I had enough to lay down, to stand up, to find water, to find plentiful grass to be fed and cared for. Who brought me in under shelter. Who protected me from the the ravenous wolf or the marauding lion. That's who God's been to me. God, who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Displeased. um, I don't know if that's a great translation because this is a really strong word in Hebrew. It actually is talking about Joseph being furious. He is greatly disturbed by this event. And, And the reason is because the firstborn is supposed to have the rights of the firstborn. Jacob is intentionally usurping that. And so what is going on, and and this is why the the text made that note. His eyes were dim because that's an explanation for Joseph. Joseph seems to think that maybe Jacob's just blind. 
Oh, he must have messed it up because he didn't really know what was going on. Because Jacob's going to respond and say, no, my son, I I did this on purpose. (laughs) Right? This is what happens next. Joseph said to his father, no, not so, my father. This one is the firstborn. Place your hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He wants to bless Ephraim. And in part, I think it's just a prophetic reality. In part, I think it's because Jacob, like we've seen throughout the entire book of Genesis, the younger brother is uplifted. We've seen that consistently. We saw it with Cain and Abel. Right? We saw it with Isaac and Ishmael. We saw it with Jacob and Esau. Now we're seeing it with Ephraim and Manasseh. It's been consistent. What's interesting is that Jacob does it intentionally. Because remember, with, with Jacob's own life, was he supposed to receive that blessing? No. Esau was. He tricked his father to get his blessing, didn't he? And there's a, there's a point to be made in this text about how great Ephraim's blessing is going to be. Why? Well, because if you remember, Isaac said, my blessing stands. Even though I was tricked, even though I didn't want it to go to Jacob, I wanted it for Esau. The fact that just the power of my word was spoken over Jacob means that blessing will come to pass. And now Jacob's saying, no, no, no. This is what I meant to bless. The younger over the older. How much more is that going to come to pass? When it was the intention of the blessing for Ephraim. There's something significant there. So he blessed them that day. Jacob blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. And so he gives a specific special plot, a specific, a specific special inheritance to Joseph, his son. This is not tribal. This is son. Now, obviously, that'd be passed down. But I want to give you this specific thing that I conquered, the piece of Canaan that I took. For myself, that will go to you, Joseph. That's how the chapter ends. But we're not done with Jacob, right? He's here for one more chapter. That's why we're going to keep going. (coughs) Excuse me. So chapter 49, Jacob summoned all his sons and said, assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Okay. What Jacob is doing here is he's about to prophesy over them. Like I told you, most of the time we hear about it as the blessing of Jacob. He's just calling something into being. This is a prophecy. Jacob is a prophet, as was Isaac, his father before him, and Abraham, his grandfather. Abraham is the first person in the Bible to be called a prophet. He's called a prophet by God in Genesis 20. 
with Abimelech. Remember that story. When God speaks to Abimelech, he says that Abraham's a prophet. Have him come pray for you. Right? So we know that this is a prophecy. But the interesting thing is we've got to think about when. What is it talking about? Where is it referring to? And all of these blessings, if you read them, and remember Jacob's mindset, they tend to make sense in light of one specific time period. And that's kind of the, the arena most scholars think it's going towards. And that is this. What's on Jacob's mind? What did we discuss being on Jacob's mind? Well, his mind is on the land. Right? His mind is on the land. So where is this prophecy pointing to? Well, most likely, based on everything he's saying, it's, this prophecy is pointing to what their lives will be like when they re-enter the land. Because that's where Jacob's mind is. So the prophecies we are about to read is obviously not during Exodus. We know where they're going to be. They're going to be in Egypt. It's not during the time of Numbers and Leviticus or the wilderness wanderings or anything like that. What it seems most likely to be is really in the period of Joshua and the judges, right? Because Joshua is them entering the land and conquering it or at least attempting to. They don't do a great job. Right. And then judges this period of tumult and and chaos when there's no king. That seems to be where Jacob is talking about what he's prophesying over these tribes. And it's again, it's really clear if you read it, he's not talking about the individuals. Now, he alludes to them. He's going to allude to some disqualifying things even right about Reuben, about Simeon, about Levi, these men we know. The actions of these ancestors are going to impact the reality of the future of these tribes. But ultimately, he's speaking about what is going to happen to these tribes. Okay, we'll start with Reuben. Reuben, this, is, this one's kind of, it's interesting the way he starts. It sounds pretty good out the gate. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, in the beginning of my strength. You are preeminent in dignity. And preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Okay. Now we talked about this. We saw it earlier in Genesis that Reuben slept with Bilhah, one of his father's concubines. And Jacob really doesn't mention it in life. But now that it's time to go, he wants it to be known that it was wrong. Reuben, as a tribe, is being disqualified from the place of the firstborn. That's what's going on. That's why he says all the stuff about preeminence. You're my firstborn. You're supposed to be the preeminent one. You're supposed to be the great one. And you won't be. And that's true. If you read the text, you read the rest of this Old, Old Testament, you're going to see that Reuben really never takes a leading role again. They never really have a place as one of the tribes that is is grand or great. They're there, of course, but they're just, they are not preeminent. They don't become the the greatest tribe. They don't uh, take the right that, at least by birth, was supposed to be theirs. They never receive it. So that's Jacob's prophecy over them. Then he goes on, he does two together. Why is he doing these two together? Well, because they did their evil together. Simeon and Levi are brothers. That seems like a truism. Like, why even say it? They're all brothers. 
Clearly, they're all biological brothers. Why would you say that? He's not talking about them being biological brothers. He's talking about them being comrades in arms, that they worked together, that they are brothers in the sense that they plotted together. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united within their assembly because in their anger they slew men and in their self-will they hamstrung, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob, Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now again, Remember, this relates back to the rape of Dinah, right? Remember, Dinah was raped, and then they go and slaughter the entire town. They go back in, they trick them into getting circumcised, and Simeon and Levi kill everyone, and then take their women and children for slaves, and then take all their donkeys and their oxen. It's awful. It's terrible. It's totally out of proportion to what happened. Although the rape is terrible, clearly. Typically, you don't murder an entire town to avenge a rape. That's just the reality. This is an out-of-proportion response. And Jacob recognizes it. Remember what Jacob said at the end of it. He said, you've made us a stink in the nostrils of these people. You've made us odious before them. They're all going to seek to kill us because of what you did. So now that it's the end of his life, that's kind of all that's said about it during his life. And now at the end of his life, he's going to prophesy over them. He says, they're violent men. And that they're going to be dispersed. And sure enough. What's interesting is when you look at Simeon. Simeon is almost absorbed by the other tribes. You really hear almost nothing about Simeon anymore. And they, their land is pretty much absorbed. By Judah. <clears throat> so that land kind of gets taken care of. And what do we know about Levi? Now they still have a place of honor, don't they? Why, do, why does Levi get a place of honor? Really, the reason Levi gets a place of honor is because Moses is from Levi. Without Moses, I mean, you can say Aaron. Well, Aaron's the priest. The only reason Aaron even got a shot is because Moses got a shot, right? Moses is the guy. And because of Moses, Levi gets a special place. But what does their special place entail? They're dispersed in Israel. If they're the priests... They have to be in every part of the land. So they have priestly cities. Levi, unlike the rest of the tribes, they didn't get a tribal allotment. They didn't get a place of their own that was their specific land where all the Levites went. No, they had Levitical cities throughout the entire nation where they would go and do their priestly duties. Sure enough, Jacob's prophecy comes to pass. Levi is scattered among the people. Simeon's absorbed. Jacob's prophecies come true. Okay, here's Judah, the fourth born. Judah, he's the first one that Jacob's not mad at. He's the first one that Jacob doesn't have something to condemn him for, which is interesting because you think he could. Because if you remember, Judah's the one who came up with the plot to sell Joseph. Yet, the prophecy is very different than that. It's not angry. It actually upholds that Judah will get the rights of the firstborn. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's a play on his name, right? What's Judah mean? 
Judah means praise. Right? The Praise the Lord. That kind of idea. Yehuda. Praise him. Right? Your brothers shall praise you. Which is odd because, again, there's only a few times, a handful of times in Scripture that someone other than God is said to receive praise. Very, very rare. But your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Why? He's going to have the place of authority. He's going to have the rights of the firstborn. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up. Of course, here's the most famous part of this chapter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now Shiloh there, it's interesting. One of these things, it's it's just the reality. This is probably a band-aid ripping maybe for some of you. I'm just going to, tell you There's a lot of parts of the Bible that are hard to translate. Several of these parts in, in this passage in chapter 49 are hard to translate. And interestingly, they mostly happen in Judah and Joseph, the hard to translate parts. And of course, you know, typically people have used that as, as a defamation of scripture, but the reality is that Hebrew is an ancient language, isn't it? And it's, it's hard to exactly know how to parse everything they have to say. So Shiloh is possible. Shiloh is a place. So that's why they translate it Shiloh in this translation. It's a place. So until they get to the place of Shiloh. But what most people think Shiloh means is he who it belongs to. So it could be not until Shiloh comes, but until he who it belongs to comes. And what is it? What are they talking about belonging to? Who authority belongs to? Who the obedience of the peoples belong to, right? Until the one whom the scepter and ruler's staff comes, until the one who comes where those things belong to him, right? That's not going to depart from you until that day. And it's not even going to depart in that day, right? But the point is, until that one comes, these things will remain with you. That's the point. And of course, in the New Testament, this is used explicitly to refer to Jesus, right? Because Jesus is from where? He's from the tribe of Judah. By his, by, well, actually, I think by his mother and his father. But specifically in this case, the important point is his mother. His mother has this connection for his birth, right? The one who gave her genes to Jesus, but also her father, so that he has a right to rule. That's very important. Okay? So he ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. What is Jacob saying here? It's just an extravagant poetic way of saying he's going to have an abundance. When it talks about washing his garments in, in grapes, in the blood of grapes, what's that referring to? Well, it's the, the wine press, right? In the old days, how do, you, how do you make wine? Well, you tread it in a wine press. You stamp it, right? Like great, Grape Lady Stomp, if you've ever seen that video. One of the greatest, you probably, the older folks in this crowd probably haven't seen that, but it's one of the funniest videos of all time on YouTube. Lady stomping on grapes, she falls out of it, a newscast. Hilarious. Anyway. 
beside the point, but we should definitely watch that. Um, so you tread the, the grapes and the, and the wine comes out of the vat, right? Well, what's the point of this washing your garments? There's so many grapes that you're literally, your robes are soaked. Your robes are just soaked in, in the, the wine that's there because you have such an abundance. It's more than you could ever, ever take care of, ever, ever process. There's, there's so much excess. It's just soaking your clothes, right? And, and his eyes are dull from wine because there's so much of it. He can have as much as he wants. His teeth white from milk. There's so much milk. He can drink as much as he wants. The point is Judah's going to have an abundance. They're going to be well taken care of. Sure enough, Judah becomes the greatest tribe, doesn't it? Judah not only becomes the ruling tribe, and in the near time, from our, our day, obviously, we see Jesus. And obviously, that's the person to all, all these things about Judah point. But in the much nearer term, at least to them, who are they thinking? Well, they're waiting David, right? David, the king, the true king. And David, of course, all those prophecies are going to filter through David before they come down to Jesus, right? So Judah is going to be a great tribe. And sure enough, it happens. In fact, they become so great. Not only do they get the king, but their whole kingdom is just named for that one tribe. You've got two kingdoms when they divide, right? After Solomon, when the kingdoms divide, you've got two kingdoms. You've got one called Israel, which has 10 tribes in it. And you've got one called Judah, because it's just made up of Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin's absorbed in them, right? That's crazy. Think about that. This tribe outpaces 10 others. They are blessed beyond compare. And of course, that's what Jacob says. These are short little ones. These are... Uh, this is kind of sad, I guess, at one level, but these, of course, are the children of the maids, so they tend to be a little shorter. Zebulun. Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon, referring to their space, the inheritance they're going to receive near the shore, near what's the ancient um, civilization of Tyre, right? At the time, Sidon. Now, <clears throat> um, I probably shouldn't say because I shouldn't just speculate. I'm pretty sure it's modern day Lebanon, but I'm not positive. So we can edit that out for the uh, podcast later. Okay, so I'm wrong. Issachar. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheep folds. Oh, excuse me. These are still the son, the, the second son, the la- latter sons of Leah. I, I don't know why I said it was the maid's children yet. There's six, right? Six boys for Leah. So it does the six boys of Leah first. So Zebulun's there. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and he became a slave at forced labor. Now, Issachar, its tribal territory is in a very vulnerable position because it's touching a bunch of other other uh, countries. They're not countries then, but other groups of peoples then. And so they do. Interestingly enough, we have archaeological evidence that the people of Megiddo said that the people of Issachar became slaves for them. And they wrote it in a note to Egypt when they were writing, the kings writing back and forth. And right around the time period of the judges, we do have proof that these people, archaeological proof that these people did become slaves because they were in a vulnerable position. Again, these, pro- these are prophetic realities. These are not just Jacob 
spitballing. He's not just like, hey, why doesn't this happen? You're like, hey, Jacob, why don't you say something nice once in a while? Maybe everyone could have a good time. And he's prophesying. He's prophesying about what he sees. Okay, now we're to the people of the maid, the maid's boys. So Dan, Dan is the son of Bilhah. This is Rachel's child, right? Okay, so Rachel's child, Dan. Dan shall judge his people. What does Dan's name mean? Dan's name, Daniel. That's where Dan comes from. It's judgment. God judges, right? So Dan shall judge his people. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. This is interesting because it seems like Jacob has an interlude here where he says, I'm waiting your salvation. Most likely it has to do with something he sees. And of course, Dan, if you know anything about the tribe of Dan, particularly in the time of the judges, they have a, a, a rough time, right? They're a small tribe. They're very insignificant. And that's what Jacob is saying. Like a viper, they're small. They're tiny. But they're going to have... You know, this one great moment, this viper that strikes at the rider. Who does that make you think of in the period of the judges? Who's the greatest Danite who ever lived? Samson. Samson is the great Danite. And the point is, if you know about the tribe of Dan, what they have in the book of Judges, you have Samson who starts to deliver his people from the Philistines. That's what it says his calling is in the book of Judges. He's going to deliver his people. Uh, The word deliverance in Hebrew is the word for salvation. We translate it differently based on what we see. Because in our English language, salvation, we narrowly think of salvation as spiritual. We don't tend to think of the word salvation as physical, right? But the word is used both physically and spiritually. A deliverance is a salvation, right? Someone physically delivering you from, from oppression or evil. That's a salvation according to the biblical language. So most likely what he's seen is that he sees Dan, this small, insignificant tribe that has a rough time. Their, their land, the allotted land to them is in the south. And in the book of Judges, they never conquer that land. And they have to move to the very north, north land. In fact, they're so small, they basically don't even become a tribe where they have a tribal allotted land. They become a city. They become the city of Dan. In fact, Dan, even though their land was meant to settle in the south, they become the northernmost border of Israel, right? The traditional measurements of Israel are said from from Dan to Beersheba, Beersheba to Dan, Beersheba being the south, Dan being the north. And so that's most likely what he's alluding to, right? This prophecy of Samson, the great viper that's going to strike out for the deliverance he's going to start to bring. So that's what we see here. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. Again, Gad's in across the Jordan. If you remember, when they come into the land, Reuben and Gad settle east of the Jordan. And so they're right on the cusp of being attacked by everyone else. Again, that's what Jacob sees. They're going to be attacked over and over and over again, but they will return the attack. So that's what he prophesies for Gad. Asher, as for Asher, his food shall be rich. And he will yield royal delicacies, royal dainties, it says here. What's the point of that? 
They live in a fertile land. They live in near the Valley of Jezreel in a very fertile place. So they're going to have great crops. They're going to be well taken care of. And in this specifically, probably the idea of delivering food to foreign courts. They're going to have such abundance that they, they, they're the chefs of the world, right? That They're going to give their crops to foreign royalty. <clears throat> Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful wor- words. I, I don't even know what I'm going to say about this one. It's a rough translation. It's a really hard translation. The idea being that he's a, a doe that runs free. This free running doe. I, I don't know what I'm going to say about it. So anyway, he's a doe. Um, there you go, Naphtali. Yeah, here we go, Joseph. Joseph is the hardest to translate of these. In fact, it's a nightmare translation. So I'll read you what it says here. Joseph is a fruitful bow. Bow? Bow? I always read that word wrong every time I read it. I have, you know what I have to hear? I'm going to be, I'm going to be real uh, vulnerable here. You know what I do when I see that word? I literally have to sing the, the rockabye baby in the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. You know, that's how I get, that's how I get the pronunciation of that word until I get it. Yes. When the bow breaks. Okay. Got it. Joseph is a fruitful bow. (laughs) Okay. Here's the, here's the weird thing about this translation. Um, it, what it literally says, Joseph is the son of a para para. It's a Hebrew word. It's Ben para. He's the son of something, whatever para is. They translate it fruitful because para, one of the meanings of it is, is fruitful. That is, it's, it's, it's a fruitful thing. The problem is no one knows exactly what to do with the sun part, right? So they just say, okay, this maybe this is relating to a plant because it has to do with fruitfulness. The other thing that para could be is the feminine form of a donkey. So it also could be saying that he's the son of a donkey. Now, what's interesting is when you go on, it goes to this part where it says its branches run over a wall, right? That word branches is not there at all. The word there behind branches is daughters. Bot. So its daughters run over the wall. They interpret because they've already made the interpretation about it being fruitful. That it must be its branches, you know, the daughters of a fruitful thing, the branches. Sure. I think it's much more likely that the donkey is true, that the donkey is actually probably what's going on, mainly because if you look at every single other one of the tribes, every one of them has been an animal reference. There have not been any fruitful reference, not any reference to plants. You have not, I mean, we just found out Naphtali's a doe, right? And who's before that? We've got all kinds of donkeys and different kind of animal imagery. And in fact, the very next one, Benjamin, what's he? He's a wolf. And Judah, Judah's a lion, right? All these animal imageries. So it doesn't make a lot of sense that they switch the imagery here. It's, I think it's much more likely that it's the donkey is probably correct. He's the son of a donkey. The son of a donkey and what? The, the, the sons, the daughters, the children of the donkey run over the wall. It's this, it's this idea of a wild donkey living its life free. It's fruitful. It doesn't need anyone to take care of it. And it just lives its life. Right, wild, free. We don't tend to think of donkeys like that. But they actually are a wild animal, right? They live their life free. 
And then it says this, the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. Again, translation super rough because we don't know. The first line is correct. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. Then we don't know who the next line is referring to. We don't know if the next line is referring to Joseph or if it's referring to his attackers. Again, I'm going to disagree with the translation here. I think it's referring to his attackers. And the reason is because Joseph never defends himself. The quintessence of Joseph's life is suffering, right? It's not some great, it's not like Joshua. He's a great warrior who goes out in battles and defends himself. No, actually, the, the essence of Joseph's life is that he just takes everything he gets. And so the other way to translate that second verse is this. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him. Their bows remained firm, even though their arms were agile. So what is that referring to? Um, <coughs> excuse me. I don't know if any of you are uh, like archers. Any of you guys like big, big time archers <laughs> out there? Shireen, are you really? That'd be awesome. So what does a bow need? You need it. You need it to be loose. You need it to be able to bend, right? So when it says their bows remained firm, what is What would that mean? It means they couldn't do what they were made to do. They remained firm. They need to be flexible. They need to be able to get the shot, but they remained hard and stiff. They couldn't bend. Even though these archers were agile. Right? To me, that makes much more sense of the Joseph story. Rather than saying, Joseph, he went out and he was firing arrows at everyone and, oh, he's awesome. No. They tried to kill him. But they couldn't. Why? Because their bows remained stiff. Even though they were agile. Even though they were the best archers. Somehow, their bows remained stiff and they couldn't pierce Joseph with those arrows. Why? The next line. Thanks be to the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. They couldn't hit him. They tried. They did everything in their power to ruin Joseph, but they couldn't because the mighty one of Jacob was there. Thanks be to the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Thanks be to the God of your father who helps you. And thanks be is the exact three Hebrew letters that would also be, if you put different vowel pointings on them, from there. So this translation has from there. Another way you could translate it is thanks be. Again, like I told you, it's really rough. It's a rough translation. Nightmare of a translation. But I do think that the, the other translation, as opposed to the NASB that I have here, makes more sense of Joseph's story. They tried to kill him. They couldn't. Because thanks be to the mighty one of Jacob. He kept their bows stiff. Even though they were the best of archers. Even though they had all, everything that they could have lined up against Joseph, they had prepared they were ready, but they couldn't succeed. 
Thanks be to the mighty one of Jacob. Thanks be to the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Thanks be to the God in heaven, the God of your father who helps you. And by the almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb. Right? So he's calling out. They're going to be fruitful again. That same blessing. I'm going to get some water here real quick. Excuse me. The blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May all those blessings be on Joseph's head and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. He loves Joseph. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. And in the evening, he divides the spoil. Benjamin's going to have a good life as a tribe. Right? Okay. We're almost done. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. And where again is Jacob's mind going to go? Immediately to the land, because he's not there. I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephron the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife, Sarah. There they buried Isaac and his wife, Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it purchased from the sons of Heth. Jacob says, put me there. That's where I'm meant to be. I'm not meant to be here in Egypt. I'm meant to be home. To the land that was promised to me. Buried with my grandfather and my grandmother, with my mother and my father. And with the unloved wife, Leah, who was buried in the cave at Machpelah, honored in her death by Jacob. That's where I should be buried. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And even there, even there in his last moments, Jacob's final moments, God's fulfilling his promises, isn't he? Because what did God promise Jacob? That Joseph would close his eyes. He says, go down to Egypt. It's, It's okay, Jacob. You'll be safe there. And Joseph will close your eyes. And I will surely bring you up out of that land. Back to the land that I promised. 
That's where we end for tonight. When I think about this passage, again, I I don't know. I'm I'm just probably like an old soul in in my heart. Uh, I think a lot about death. I just do, generally. Maybe that's morbid. Um, That's just who I am. I think a lot about that type of thing. Suffering, death, you know, the good things in life. That's just my personality. One of the things I think about all the time, I mean, I wouldn't say daily, but Monique can attest, at least weekly, I think about legacy. That's a daily reality for me, truly. Because I recognize that at the end of the day, 130 years or not, you're a blip. You're a mist, you're a vapor. And all that's going to be left when you're gone is is the legacy you left in people's lives. Or the, you know, whatever you built. Whether, you know, that's structures or companies or whatever. But, but there's going to be something left behind of you. You've got to decide what that's going to be. Because whether you like it or not, there's going to be something left behind of you. Right? Maybe it's like the family of Jacob and what's left behind of you is your bitterness from the two mothers that hated each other. And the sons inherited that. Maybe it'll be really positive things. Really think, maybe you did great things. I don't know. Maybe you did great things and uh, your family wants nothing to do with you. There's a lot of people like that out in the world. Man, the world, they love them. Look at this great thing they built. And their kids, they hate them. They want nothing to do with them. There's all different kinds of legacies that you can leave. And when I read that passage, I think about what Jacob left behind when he was dying. Because again, like I said, that's how I think. I think about those moments a lot. I think, what what is it going to be like to have Gwen and Eli and Sophia? And if we ever have a fourth, whatever that fourth one would be. When they're gathered around my deathbed. What am I going to say? Like even now, I'm, you know, I'm 30, almost four. Even now at 34, I, I'm thinking, what is that moment going to be like? What would I say? What would I say to my boy? What do I want to leave with him? Like I said, maybe it sounds weird, but I have all these scenes, like movie scenes in my head about the things I would say, the things I would do. You know, the what am I going to leave to them? Because the truth is, like I said, we're, we're going to leave something. But we got to determine the problem is what's left behind. As much as I like to think so, <laughs> because again, I, I'm, I have those cinematic scenes in my head. Really what you leave behind isn't really determined by that last moment, is it? It's really determined by the, you know, however long, 60 years of life you live with that person or seven. You know what? That's what determines it. That's what makes the legacy. 
That's what determines they're left with. I mean, and I'm not saying God can't do this. I, I think he does. And I mean, we saw it in this family's story, really. But like the deathbed reconciliation, unless there's a miracle that God's working, that's not usually the case, is it? It can happen for sure. Praise God when it does. But typically, the last moment's too late. If we're going to have a legacy, we've got to think about what that legacy is going to be now. And that doesn't just mean for kids or anything. I just mean generally. What are you going to leave behind for the people that you care for? Whether that's kids or friends or this community or the world. All of that's determined in how you live your life now. All of that's determined on the life we're living on this earth now. Until we get to that moment. I still pray, I still hope that the cinematic moments happen. But I know if they do, it's only because they're an outpouring of the reality that I lived. So I guess what I'd ask you to think about tonight is just what is your legacy? What are you leaving behind? For some of you, you might be at a place in your life or an age perhaps in which that is more natural for you to think about. But even for you who are more of my generation, I don't know if you guys think about that as much. But what I'm asking you to do tonight is to think about that. What I'm asking you to think about in the next week is to think about that. What are you going to leave behind? What are you leaving behind for the people you disciple? What are you leaving behind for the people of your church, of your community, of your family? You got to think about some of those questions beforehand so that you can try to live out the life, just like Aaron's saying tonight about the spirit shaping our heart. Without that work, we're not going to leave the legacy we want. Got to commit to that process. So my prayer for you tonight is that you'd think about it. I don't have some great action point. I don't have go out and fix this relationship or any. Maybe. That's, I, I'm going to leave that to God to lay on your heart. All I have for you is what I probably do way too much of, is just to tell you, take a little time to think about something. Think about what you want to leave behind. Think about the legacy. Because ultimately that is all that's going to be left. It's all that will be left here to continue on after you. One day we'll all be back together. That will be a great day. But as far as this earth goes, all that's left is what you decide to leave behind, whatever legacy you leave. So let's think about that this week. Let's think about that through this season. Because Jesus had a legacy too, didn't he? And Jesus' legacy was not just because he stayed on earth forever, though he could have. Jesus had a greater purpose. Died just around my age. Maybe it was a good thing to think about what he wanted to leave behind before he got to be an old man. He had a legacy. He pursued that legacy. We got to do the same.